Hi everyone, I'm Lucy Stratton. And I'm Rick Cosgrove. And you're listening to Experiential Alchemy, where we talk to experiential experts about themselves. How they got started in their careers, where they are, where they're going, and how experiential plays into it all. And I'm so excited because today's guest is a bit of a change of pace for our show. Today, we are joined by Lauren Nordgren, behavioral scientist and professor of management and organizations at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management. So Rick and I had the pleasure of meeting Lauren and joining a few of his memorable lectures during our time at Kellogg. And since then, we've enjoyed having Lauren visit EAC to talk with our greater team about leadership and management. Uh, Lauren always has something cooking, and his latest book, The Human Element, talks about overcoming people's resistance to new ideas. It's been featured in the Wall Street Journal and on USA Today's bestseller list. We are very excited to talk more about it today. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. It's uh, so good to be here. So good to, to be back with you guys. Yeah, glad to have you. Awesome. So we kind of start every podcast with this question, but we'd love to start off by hearing a bit more about your background and your career journey. Where did you start and where are you today? Uh, who am I? The journey? How did it happen? So, I'll, well, as though people will figure out very quickly, I'm a psychologist, but not like a therapist psychologist. So I'm someone who studies human behavior. Uh, and I'll give you a very human behavior answer to that question. So I'm not sure that I have introspective access to how I got started. Like, I don't know that I can truly explain to you why I'm interested in what I'm interested in, but I will. Um, so give it a shot. So my background uh, is in um, behavioral science or experimental psychology. Um, and I did my PhD at the University of Amsterdam and then have been here at Kellogg in the management group for, this is year 15. Um, and let's see, what else to, to know um, about me? I, like, how did I get started in this? Is that yeah, what you're driving sure, at? Yeah. Um, gosh, so, um, so one sort of fun fact is I didn't go to early, like I did no preschool, uh, maybe I didn't really go to school until like fourth grade. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. And I feel like this is an important element of me because I remember um, like my first pizza party. I have such a vivid memory of my first pizza party, like walking down the stairs to the basement. The point of all of this is like because of my like I kind of grew up in the woods a lot of normal stuff I had to be like a like an anthropologist yeah. like decoding like every other kid had been to a million pizza parties but yeah. this was like my first one and so for me a lot of social experience early on was having to like read the room read crews diagnose wow. how things are happening wow. so I felt like I grew up very different like mm -hmm. very different experience base so if I were to invent some kind of origin story, it would probably be something and that has something to do with it, I think. That is interesting. Very. Well, that that does kind of make sense mm. that you sort of came in and were observing everything. Yeah. So, okay. How does that maybe play into, I, I, we definitely want to talk about the human element, but mm -hmm. I think before we get, jump right into that, we we're wondering if you could lay just some basic groundwork on 
the fundamentals of psychology, you think maybe all marketers, but particularly maybe those in experiential um, should understand? Um, unrelated to this, just sure. w- anything that we see as, um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you guys encounter? Hmm. I think not feeling repetitive, giving mm-hmm. people new experiences. I think that's a, a big part of it is that conferences, uh, you know, th- things people see on a day-to-day or yearly basis in some cases feel mostly very similar. So I think sometimes trying to break that mold and get a client to, you know, push the envelope a little bit on what they're willing to spend money on or do from an experiential standpoint, I think that's that's something we see yeah. often. Yeah. I mean, um, you, when you say psychology is so big, but what I think about is, you know, influence, how do we bring new ideas into the world? And um, for me, the, this, the first axiom of influence, the starting principle is um, people are most persuaded by ideas and insights they generate themselves rather than those given to them. Mm-hmm. And the, if you wanted to put a label on this core concept, it would be self-persuasion. And if that is one thing that I could offer over to people, it is to think about how rather than looking at the, because I'm connecting the dots here because you're talking about wanting people to embrace something new. How do you sell them on something more, something different? Mm-hmm. Um, all of our learning connotation, like our inf- our intuitions about how you do that is really about you as knowing what needs to happen and you're using words and ideas and emotion to have them see the light. Like that's kind of the the core the core notion we all have. And instead, if we can find ways to have them have that insight or for Mm -hmm. them to feel as though that they have arrived at that insight, even if you've helped nurtured it, to me, that is the fundamental thing that starts making change feel easier. Mm -hmm. And be happy to, you know, as we go, get into examples of that. But that to me is sort of the core thing of can we uh, create self-insight rather than sort of looking at this process is about convincing, compelling exertion. Sure. And to me, the the kind of related uh, foundational idea is just how extraordinarily value valuable perspective taking and, and empathy yeah. is. Yeah. And I think both of these can feel like to someone listening can feel like truisms. Mm-hmm. And so for the, the challenge with a lot of these foundational ideas is what you're offering over is not like a, a totally unexpected, unencountered idea. Mm-hmm. All that matters here is are you living that concept? Right. And and so even even this challenge of saying, you know, like how do you offer something new and it's getting repetitive, mm-hmm. that to me is a really interesting perspective-taking challenge that I encounter um, in teaching, and it might be parallel to a challenge you face, which is the 18th time you've you've used this example, right? It stops losing its emotional punch for you, right? Yeah. but it's still fresh for others. And that's, sure. and I've made that mistake where I start ditching some really good stuff, really good stuff yeah. just because it's not, it's not registering with me anymore. Yeah. And so now I'm starting to like, like do other stuff. And now 
I'm not seeing the same reception as I was before. Well, mm-hmm. it's still new to them. Right. And right. That, that, that perspective, to me, that, that reveals some of the difficulty of perspective taking because it's like yeah. what you're experiencing is, is often very, very different from them, particularly as you gain experience in the, in the journey. Right. Yeah. I think we do, like to that point, experience that a lot internally is that um, decision to repeat an experience or something that we did maybe for one, you know, brand or one industry and how it could parallel into another and us debating whether we should pursue doing the same exact thing, knowing it's a different audience and a brand new experience for them or to just our, for ourselves, want to challenge ourselves to think beyond or try and do something new and different and, you know, trying to find the line of when you should repeat because more people can benefit Mm -hmm. from a good idea. Mm Okay, next question. In your book, you talk about the idea of a fuel-based mindset, which is the common belief that the only way to convince people to adopt a new idea is to heighten the appeal of that idea. Um, Can you touch on the two types of fuel you discuss in the book and how experiences might be at risk of solving with fuel? Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so this is the, 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 the core idea. And if I could start with analogous comparison. Uh So I I think a really good, in essence, what we're trying to do is highlight uh, what I think is a really consequential blind spot. And you can see the blind spot with a question that seems unrelated, which um, a question that we've probably posed thousands of times now uh, is we'll ask people what makes a bullet fly. Mm -hmm. You know, so you can, if you think about whatever its connotations, a bullet is this for such a simple technology, it's a pretty extraordinary thing. Um, what is it that enables a bullet to uh, to fly so far and so true? And if you ask people that question, the basic universal answer you get is gunpowder. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason they say gunpowder is because when gunpowder ignites, it expands, it pushes the bullet out the barrel. The more gunpowder you put in, the, the greater the exit velocity. So... Gunpowder is not the wrong answer to that question, but it is a, a woefully, really incomplete answer, mm-hmm. right? Because anytime something is in flight, you have these forces that propel it, that fuel it, gunpowder, a jet engine, uh, whatever it may be. But you also have these forces that work against flight, uh, principally being, uh, uh, we call those frictions, and those are things like uh, gravity and wind resistance. So when you think about what enables um, a bullet to hit a, you know, a target with precision time and again, yes, gunpowder is an important piece of this story, but it's only half the story. It is equally true that the reason a bullet can do that is because it's aerodynamic. So everything about the bullet has been optimized to reduce drag. That's the principal friction operating against it. Now, this, I think, is a beautiful metaphor for the 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 problem we are trying to put our finger on, which is when we're launching new ideas, when you're trying to get someone to brace maybe a, a something new, maybe a little more cutting edge, you know, there are elements of that proposal, that idea that fuel it. And the job of fuel is really anything that makes the thing you want people to do attractive. Mm-hmm. So if, mm-hmm. like a product, a new feature on the product. Well, why do we put a new feature on it? We're trying to elevate appeal. Um, refined look and feel to the packaging. Why do you do that? You're trying to elevate appeal. Um, you know, 
humorous brand association, like all these things we're doing is we're trying to elevate appeal, magnetism. And it's, it's this kind of deep assumption that eventually, like we think our job as marketers, as social activists, really anyone trying to create change is if we elevate appeal high enough, eventually we'll get people over right. the line. Now, all of that is fuel and that is important. It is necessary, but the mind fixates on that. There are also all of these psychological frictions that hold ideas down, and that's what people don't see. That's yeah. what they don't attend to. And so the, the message here um, that's kind of born out of both research and just as, as practitioners is that if we want to create change, we have to start saying the other side of the equation. Mm -hmm. This would be like, you know, imagine building an airplane thinking only about engines and not thinking about aerodynamics. Mm -hmm. the, the, our core argument is that that's basically what people are doing when when creating change. Yeah, yeah. that's a, a very, uh, I think, cogent example for our world because I've noticed with clients, we'll jump to designing the experience, designing what are these amazing things that mm. are they're going to happen on site when the people arrive there. But if you actually pull back, you have to think about what obstacles the individual may face even getting there. Right. And it's very easy to jump over that first step, which I think we do all the time. Oh, yeah. Just Constantly. The, uh, you know, in our world, we want everyone to come and experience the product, learn more about it, all the things that we make happen. Um, but then I think we, are, we almost jump over thinking about you know, these individuals have to fly on a plane, they have to mm -hmm. maybe leave their families, all the different obstacles in their way to even get to the place that we're doing all the design mm -hmm. for. Mm -hmm. um, so well, and then you reach a point where you're like, okay, we want to maybe turn this conference upside down and completely take a different route of an agenda that is non-typical for a conference. Well, as much as that sounds maybe good in theory, is that actually going to be a positive experience for the mm -hmm. participant or is it going to lead to just one more thing because maybe they had a delay in their flight? Maybe their hotel room was screwed up. Maybe they it was raining and when they had to get over to the conference and now we're asking them to do even more on site. I think it is something we think about often and I, going back to even the frictions, part of some of the frictions that we find too is just running out of time. Like mm -hmm. events in general, they all have, this is when it's happening, this is when it's going on. And sometimes our method in selling in an idea is tied to, we need to make decisions now so we could start to produce and execute against it. And that friction is usually, in many cases, the final turnoff to just revert back to what is, I don't know, familiar. And so much of it is not that people don't see the value. Mm -hmm. It's that these kind of psychological impediments, often anxiety, fears, concerns, hold these good ideas down. And um, thinking, and so when I think about this in your context, um, you know, there's probably a lot of programs people are excited about, mm -hmm. but what are the anxieties, what are the uncertainties, what are the fears that give them pause or hesitation? Going to the four frictions, you know, in the book, mm -hmm. you talk about inertia, effort, emotion, reactance. What should experiential marketers look to change about the way they develop and present concepts to 
maybe first convince clients to produce something that breaks yeah. that status quo. So, so for me, uh, um, you know, what I'd love to offer over is some design principles that just, you know, if you were in the kind of practitioner role, like maybe give people some insight. If, if I were next to them and trying to apply these ideas, what are some of the questions I would ask? Sure. And, you know, the first is, the good news is a lot, once you start, once you shift the mindset, like stop thinking in fuel, switch to friction-based mindset, a lot of these things become obvious, mm -hmm. right? It's true of a lot of blind spots. So that I think that's, that's the good news. So one of the questions I like to ask at, at a general level is let's assume, because we're generally believing that the reason things aren't going quite as well is because there's insufficient fuel. Mm -hmm. And we gotta amp excitement, we gotta amp appeal, we gotta amp something. And what I find very helpful is to say, let's imagine for a second, people actually are amped up, they do like this idea. What are some of the things that would hold people back who actually love this idea? Like we don't have to convince them, there are just barriers. And what are some of those barriers? And that can be, super helpful in that general mindset switch. Yeah. Now, beyond that, um, you know, we've, and I'm saying we, because this is done with my co amazing co-author, David Schoenthal, um, we like to think in terms of these four frictions and they're very helpful for putting your finger on what the specific issue is. Mm -hmm. So the first one is, so the thing you want people to do, are we talking about a massive change or a tweak? And if you, the answer is massive change, part of the, re, you should anticipate resistance and, and that's because the human mind favors the familiar over the unfamiliar. It has nothing to do with logic data. It has nothing to do with the idea itself. It has to do with the fact that familiar things to the unconscious mind uh, signal safety. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so you are building a feature into the idea that challenges that safety. Right Now, once you see that, you can begin coming, there are techniques to get people more comfortable with, with um, you know, bold ideas, but it's seeing that first as essential. I would ask the question, what you want people to do, is it effortful or not? Greater the effort, the greater resistance. Yeah. And then finally, I'd think about, um, let's assume that even if this is a great idea, let's assume this idea triggers some negative emotions in people. What would those be? It's what we call emotional friction. Mm. Uh, and then finally, uh, this really speaks to the relationship between the innovator and the audience. Are there certain ways in which people are feeling pushed? And because the more they're feeling pushed, then the, the more likely it is that they're going to push back. And that mm. pushback has nothing to do with your concept, it just has everything to do with human nature, which is that's the natural reaction to being pushed. Yeah. Hmm. So those are the kind of four questions I like to ask to diagnose where the friction resides. But if that sounds complicated, if you just start asking, uh, assuming this is a great idea, what's getting in the way? Right. That to me often unlocks that mindset shift. I feel like a big part of what I'm getting to, a lot of times as we go into things, we're not thinking about the frictions. That shows up after something's not working. But how do you get people to think about that potential problem before you launch it and maybe it doesn't work for the first year or the event maybe is missing something or whatever it might be? 
How do you go about doing that even in some of the brainstorms that you run to get people to think about this first yeah. before it fails and then you have to rethink it again? Yeah, well, I mean, it, for, it speaks to a des- one of the design principles here is uh, you are in a much better place to start identifying these frictions before you begin than after. Right. It, it doesn't mean it it's too so late. so much time. It's totally. like it's like and money. You, you want the parking brake down before you hit the gas. Yeah. Then then once everything is smoking. So, um, you know, he, here again, it it, it come it go, goes back to now there are tools, free tools. So, um, uh, on the book's website that that help people map the frictions. Mm-hmm. But here again, I think it comes back to um, even this kind of question of let's assume. Um, Let's talk about fuel. The human mind will do that naturally. What are some of the barriers mm-hmm. doing that? I find that to be a very practical question. But then if you start thinking about what are the um, – like if you look at the anatomy of your concept, your idea, whatever it is, trying to figure out which of these four elements are active in it. One of the problems with friction I've found is that it creates cynicism because – you take these ideas that are clearly right, mm-hmm. but people don't embrace them. And what leadership learns from that is that, well, it's because people are dumb or they can't be trusted or they're lazy. They're not seeing that the parking brake is up. Sure. And um, so I, I think what is necessary, you have to do the work and asking yourself, Let's think in terms of the behaviors that are or the the features of this environment that might be holding people back. And yeah. and again, I think it comes back to why um, perspective taking is so important. So one of the, the I feel like there's a a parallel here in one of the more interesting case studies. So we started uh, mystery shopping guitar stores, like and which are universally not doing well. Mm. Um, and to me, like, think about if you don't have to sell anybody on the idea that being a musician is cool, mm-hmm. that playing the guitar is cool. Like, it's not right for some people, but I bet every new generation of kids, there's like wannabe rock stars. Like, you don't have to create excitement for this idea. Right. But think of a few of those people pick up a guitar. Mm-hmm. And I imagine a lot of it is for situate like someone in the home already has a guitar. Right. right. But then there's this huge group of people who it's a latent dream, right? Like they wish if you said, hey, you, if you could play the guitar, would you like that? How sure. important? They would yeah. say, yes, yes it would be amazing. Yeah. Right. But that huge mass of people will always stay on the sideline. And a big reason for that is beginner anxiety, mm-hmm. right? Like taking the first step, walking in the door. And part of that is created by the guitar store because who do they hire? They hire experts. Right. So we would call up uh, guitar stores and, and say, I'm, I've never picked up a guitar. It's always been a dream of mine. Mm-hmm. I'm like laying out who I am. Yeah. And the first question they always ask is, well, what kind of guitar do you want? Yeah. I have no idea. I don't know. Yeah. You have just put your yes. finger on on yes. the acute anxiety I have. Yes. Right. right. You have just reinforced my fear that I don't know. I don't belong here. I don't know the landscape. I don't yeah. know the rules. Yeah. I, and um, so if you were to think about, well, how do we create growth? It's not to like convince people that, 
you know, you thought guitaring was this cool. It's actually way cooler than you ever imagined. Yeah. yeah. It's what you would want to do is take this huge army of people who are on the sidelines and figure out how do you get them comfortable with taking that first step. Mm-hmm. And when you think about experiences, um, I have to imagine if we started thinking about what's the person who kn- knows this is important, it's a good idea. Another design principle is often friction inadvertently creates fuel. So mm. I could imagine in certain ways some of the things we do to create excitement, to create interaction, could inadvertently mean social anxiety. But I think the good news is if you just start asking that, mm-hmm. often mm-hmm. these new possibilities will start to emerge. Yeah. yeah. So you were talking about, you know, the bigger, the bigger and more radical the change, expect more resistance. Do you have any specific tactics to get buy-in from those individuals who are, you're sort of talking about the perspective taking Mm -hmm. and trying to, I don't know, in my own words, make them seem like it was their idea or get their thumbprint on it. Mm -hmm. I was Uh, just curious if you have any thoughts on that. I have thoughts. Um, So when you're dealing with inertia, which is what we call the the friction that comes from radical change, also, I, I think this can be both big change or rapid change. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when people are j- having to grapple with either of those elements. Um, you, let me give you the golden one, and then I'll talk about a, a broader class of of, uh, of solutions. To me, the 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 golden solution to this problem is um, my guess is what we do ninety nine percent of the time is we identify one path and we give them one path. Mm-hmm. So you want them to bind to this thing. Right. It's one thing. Um, right now, I've just wrapped up a group that the, the change they were trying to bring into the world, HR folks from across industry, all trying to create greater support engagement for DEI initiatives. Mm-hmm. That's a one broad proposal. You're going to leadership, you're going to employees and saying, um, uh, DEI is important. We need you to embrace this change. But that is the little context clue, the alarm. Anytime you're giving people one option, whether Mm -hmm. it's very specific, whether it's broad, there's not actually one option. There are two options, at least to the unconscious mind. When you give people one thing, like a new technology or pitching a new event. So for me, the go-to concept, so I call this the relativity principle, is put ideas in context. So uh, I'll use a kind of absolute statement a little loosely, never give people one option. Mm-hmm. Always give people multiple options. And w- there's so much, like if you want to figure out how to like all of a sudden make new ideas, like just dramatically start reducing the resistance, put our ideas in a context that make relativity more favorable. Mm. Now we can get more specific about that. One of them is start putting ideal on the table. Mm -hmm. So like, okay, here is an example kind of from your, I I think that's sort of adjacent. So this was a architecture firm. They would give people one look. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, So then um, someone else came along and said, you know, what would be cool is let's give them like multiple looks, two looks. Because that kind of creates reciprocity, shows we're going above and beyond, mm-hmm. there's value in choice. But what happened is you gave them two looks, and now all of a sudden, 
they would agonize, uh-huh. right? And mm-hmm. you should really like let the experts do this. Like, let's take a little of that and a little of that. Oh yeah. So that's given them multiple options, but unsuccessfully. Uh-huh. The pivot they made is now, so you can give people extreme or what I call uh, use inferior as reference points. Mm-hmm. So they would give people one look that they felt the client would love. And then they said, so now we took what you had to say and we kind of pushed it to its extreme. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you wanted to see what this on steroids would look like, it was more, far more like experimental uh-huh. option. And the beauty of that is it carried all the, the value of giving, of reciprocity, of showing we're going above and beyond. But when they looked at those two things, like rather than agonize, the, the unusualness of that like extreme yeah. option elevated their comfort with the first with the option. That's because, fascinating. Because it's breaking it, because it's rather than what would I like yeah. to do, what I know or something new, yeah. we understand the world entirely in relative terms. Yeah. Right. And so when they saw that, in part, the mind does not understand this, but your excitement about the, the more conventional option is largely determined by you're seeing it in the context of this radical thing. Right. So that almost scared them that they're like, oh, we really like this. We really love we this. always expected them yeah. to like. Or it also could go the other way where they do then want to take the bigger plunge because it is something crazier and totally yeah. envelope pushing. So it, I, I like that approach a lot, actually. Always leave ideal in mm-hmm. because anything that comes under ideal in relative terms, will feel more comfortable, more familiar. Right. Uh, it shrinks the change. So that's how this goes back to inertia for big radical things. Don't like, yeah, maybe have realistic options underneath, but always leave radical ideal there yeah. because it shrinks the change of everything that comes below it. Hmm. I like that a lot, even for other reasons other than what you're talking about is like, especially for clients that we've been with for years or other agencies have been with for years. I think it's an expectation too, where it's like, you know us so well, we kind of know what we should be doing and what it should be looking like. But if you don't maybe represent or come back to the table with what the ideal looks like, if we didn't have to think about budget, didn't have to think about timing or even where this is happening or how many people we can invite to it, what is it that we should or could be doing? And I think that also lends itself to what a good partner does, right? Is, is kind of push the, you know, push the thinking beyond what you know you're Mm going to end up choosing. Let them sort of choose where they want to scale back. Yeah. And also just recognize too, that, you know, we, you're not taking the relationship for granted. You are comfortable and enjoy thinking outside of the box of what you know likely they're going to want to do mm-hmm. and land on. They want to get challenged outside of the, mm-hmm. the usual thinking. So Right. So, Lauren, I'd love to get a little bit into your work on leadership and organizational behavior. I think a lot of the um, stuff that we learned from you during our time at Kellogg has really stuck with us. Um, so just thought we'd hit on that. But what are a few of the fundamental values of leadership you think should be top of mind for leaders and maybe specifically leaders at a creative agency? For me, the number one point of differentiation is um, 
are we being intentional in what we're doing? Do we understand what we're truly trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. Um, and are we setting ambitious goals around that? And and take for example, so when people walk into a meeting, they probably either have what I would call decision making goal, like we're trying, we have to pick a path here. We don't know what that is, or they have an influence goal, mm-hmm. like I as leader know the path I'm trying to get buy in. Those are probably the two most common goals people have when they walk into a meeting. My guess is the vast majority of time, people don't really know what that goal is. Mm -hmm. Maybe they understand it vaguely, implicitly, but they're not walking in with a real clear sense of what is it I'm trying to achieve here. Yeah. Because almost everything you would do strategically if you have a decision-making goal is almost going to be the opposite than if you have... Uh, an influence goal. And my guess is what um, we always are goal driven. Like every single thing we do is, you know, goals drive behavior without them. There's no action. Yeah. It's just most of that is happening under the waves. Mm -hmm. And that I think is really, you know, I think about leadership as a behavioral scientist and it's what the the fundamental challenge for me is how are we pulling that those elements into conscious awareness. Mm-hmm. So when you're walking in, like you're, what are the goals of this interaction? Are the goals here to reconnect? Are the goals to promote? Are the goal? And when people understand explicitly, consciously, what they're trying to achieve, uh, they're generally more effective, mm-hmm. and their behavior tends to be more consistent with those long-term values and aspirations. Yeah. That makes sense. So who should be set in the meetings, the influencer or the decision maker? Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I can't say. It depends on what you're trying to achieve. But it's it's uh, but we should just know what that goal is. Yeah. Besides writing a book, mm-hmm. you helped develop an app to brainstorm better, Candor. Mm-hmm. How – tell us a little bit more about that because I think that's an interesting tool for people in our seat. Definitely. Mm. You know, if you think about just – Easy ideas for everyone to embrace. One of them is sort of the uh, wisdom of the crowds, tap into the creative energy of everyone in the room. Um, But the way we do that is not really well equipped to truly harness people's creative potential. And and so again, I mean, what I would would say most people do is they, they create experiences that have very little intentionality behind them and they're kind of hoping for the best. And so if you think about that in the context of say brainstorming or any kind of ideation, it's, it's, we get together into a meeting, someone kicks, throws out an idea and we just sort of go from there. Mm -hmm. And I could go on at length about what are the, the issues with that. And, and, you know, number one, you know, you get these like collaborative dynamics of, hearing from the very few right. often the best ideas are co- not you know are being held back there's problems of creating pressure on what is or isn't a good idea right. and so the the circumstance most leaders are creating is when the meeting ends in say like a brainstorming session my guess is they f- believe that they have tapped into people's true opinions mm-hmm. and the totality of those opinions mm-hmm they are nowhere near tapping into either of those things. Mm-hmm. And so what Candor is designed to do is create 
systems that make it easier for people to put forward um, their true uh, opinions. Mm -hmm. And it's also designed to focus attention on the merit of the idea as opposed to the, the status of the idea holder. Um, so that's that's what that's designed to do. Nice. We've yeah. spent years working on this and have also felt that you almost have to do a pre-training to train someone to be part of a brainstorm totally. effectively yep. because it's so so easy to start immediately, you know, poking holes in something or immediately just jumping to why something won't work, yeah. Yeah. right? Or yeah. Whether it is it's budget tempting. or the client yeah. or the whatever it might be or the wrong audience. And stifling then the conversation that could revolve around maybe that idea not being right, but I don't know, what what is it, the yes and? Mm-hmm. The yes and, <laughs> yeah. Okay, what is one finding or learning from your research that you think every marketer needs to hear or should remember? Um, find the way to make the thing you want them to do easier. And, you know, in the context of marketing, um, so I think a lot about the, the sort of effort calculus, like what's the effort expenditure? And I think there are two ways to think about effort. One is, one, how can we make it easier? Something that we'd call streamlining. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, like, if you're in, like, UX design, you're pretty dialed into that because you've seen all of this evidence of how each time there's for every additional line that people have to fill in, there's attrition, right? You're just, people are dropping out. Um, But this also happens in another really important way that I often think gets neglected, which is ambiguity. So I think so much of what looks like resistance is really ambiguity, Hmm. or what I think we often neglect is, you know, effort isn't just about steps, it's mental effort. Like, how easy am I making it for people to do what I want in, in this instance? Right. And, and uh, a couple examples of that for me. So one, um, this is one shared in the book. Um, a, uh, th- this is a solution we call if-then triggers. But uh, I was talking to my uh, real estate agent, and he asked me to refer him. Mm-hmm. To people, right? And th- everyone, I'm sure, does that. Oh, and by the way, yeah. you know, if you if you're looking for anyone that's got a looking for a home, please, you know, give him my card, right? Right. It's totally standard practice. But he did something a lot smarter, which is notice if you just do the conventional thing, you're not making it easy for me to help you. Because mm-hmm. think of all this. I have to remember you. I have to remember this. Right. I have to spot the moment. I have to do all of those things. Right. So he said this very smart thing, which is, said, so there's probably new Kellogg faculty that join your group every year, right? And I was like, yep. And he said, do, I, I imagine, you know, most of them are moving here, so they're looking for homes. And then he said, this, the key po- point, I'm, I'm guessing early on you're looking for a way to do something, you know, nice pro-social relationship building with them. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that's true. It's like, well, you know, Remember me because, you know, when you've got a, when a new faculty joins your group, you can often say, hey, if you need a new agent, let me know because I've got a great one. Mm-hmm. That is way better than the conventional approach totally. because what he created in my mind is an if-then trigger. 
if he had enough empathy to understand my motivations, that yeah. like I want to be a good colleague to to new incoming faculty, but it is effortless for me now. Like when we at the beginning of the fall quarter, new faculty event, mm -hmm. every single one I walk up and say, "Hey, are you looking for a home? If so, I've got an agent for you." Right. He must love you. But oh, yeah. but he made it so easy for yeah. me to do that. And I think that piece of it is showing people, can you give them a roadmap? Can you show them how, like make the thing you want them to do easier? And so like if, if, if like a product, for example, or an event, if it has unexpected value, um, make them see what that value is. Like don't require that they figure that out on their own. Yeah. Um, any, if there is, can we create windows of opportunity that make the thing you want them to do easier to happen? Right. Um, that to me is the, is trying to um, really understand the, the steps necessary, but also understand that even just remembering to do the thing is a huge part. So like if it's, if it's word of mouth, right? If that's the behavior they want. I bet there's tons of people who would love to promote, but they just don't, they intend to, but then they forget. Right. And, and so for me, it's, it's really thinking about how can I change the effort calculus to make mm -hmm. the thing I want easier. I have um, one last question for you. I understand you have an unusual pet. Maybe it sounds like two because mm. Rick also has an affinity for unusual pets. I do. Got a tarantula and a mm. leopard gecko. Mm -hmm. Yeah, green it, bottle blue. Icarus. Yeah, yeah Icarus. Um, so Icarus is, um, you know, I won't put labels like unusual. I'll let people okay, decide that's for fair. themselves. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We <laughs> well, the tarantula <laughs> is. So we'll we'll keep yeah. that. No, no, no. <laughs> so, um, so the backstory is, um, so uh, Icarus is a uh, about a 45 pound desert tortoise. Gosh. And um, so I'm living with my 16-year-old self. So when I was 16, I got this idea that upon my death, um, I would have amassed an inheritance. And I thought it would be funny if in my will, I assume there would be some will, I would build stipulations into the will requiring, like f if my heirs wanted the money, they would be required to care for this tortoise <laughs> lavishly. Oh, this seemed yeah. hilarious to me to be burdensome in death. Uh -huh. So I got Icarus, the uh, spurthied uh, African tortoise, otherwise known as Sulcata. Maybe there's like one person in it listening who knows what that means. And it is the third largest land tortoise on earth. And uh, yeah, I am. And he lives in your place you in Bucktown? just roam around the house? He lives in my place in Bucktown. Um, nice. Uh, we're fortunate to have some outdoor space. So uh -huh. in the summer, he has a good part of the year and a terrible part of the uh, year. Yeah. And we're in the in the latter right now. Good part of the year, he's outside getting a lot of sun, active, mm -hmm. happy. And in the winter, he lives in a kiddie pool in, mm -hmm. in my like yeah. study work area. <laughs> um, but he's kind of low, you know, cold-blooded. It's cooler in there, so yeah. he's okay. Yeah. yeah. So how old is he at this point? Um, got, I mean, he's in his thirties, so. Oh, wow. Yeah. And what's his life expectancy? A like hundred years. Like, um, 
them in captivity is relatively recent, but easily 100 years. Wow. So my guess would be, you know, if you're giving them everything he needs, and, and I think we're still, um, yeah, 100, 130 wow. more, right? Wow. Um, or, or much longer, right? You know, there's, um, in the Galapagos, there is a specific tortoise that met Charles Darwin. Still alive? Still one, George, walking around. Like that one was written, that specific tortoise was written about by Charles Darwin and I think was like 80 years old at that point. Oh my God. That's wild. That's mind blowing. Yeah, Yeah, that's really crazy. Yeah. I guess I didn't, I I guess I kind of knew but didn't realize because I know birds, some birds can live a really long time too, like in the 80s. But yeah, that a tortoise. You should make it like you see the, the Gunther Netflix documentary about the, the German shepherd that was worth like 400 yes. million. Oh, yes, yes, yes. That'll yes, be like yeah. Icarus. Yeah, I know. He'll have his own trust. For <laughs> I know. I want to know what a lavish lifestyle for him is. Like, is it a special bed? Butter lettuce. Um, it, yeah, fancy I think lettuces. In my mind, it meant like a living room would be converted into like yes. a wow, his, yeah. His vivarium, home. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, and travel? Would he travel? Frequent, not, frequent, not travel, but it would yeah. mean. Um, Unlimited supply of cacti, favorite food, and <laughs> constant checking up on like a lawyer, making sure things have been followed. Wow, like, yeah. I like that part uh-huh. of it. Um, this is a great legacy. It's given <laughs> me a like lot it. to think about. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> well, um, this was great. Yeah, so great. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, it's, it's been, been great to be here. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Experiential Alchemy, a podcast by Agency EA. For more information, visit us at agencyea.com or follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and TikTok. See you next time.